This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 430. And the quote of the day is, every master was once a disaster. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's up, friends and family? Nick Rafini here. This is episode 430 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. What's happening? Uh, quickly, I wanted to, I don't know, I'm sure that nobody's listening, or the person is not listening to this, but I made a comment uh, earlier that someone said that the podcast would be better if there wasn't, there wasn't as much cursing going on in the podcast. And I sort of responded by saying, you know, sorry, sometimes I curse, sometimes I don't. I talk on the podcast like I do in real life. And I think they took offense to it because they went back and changed the review on iTunes and said that the podcast sucked or something like that and made it a one star. So I just want to publicly say that I wasn't like calling that dude out or I wasn't like talking smack. I was just saying like I talk on the podcast how I talk in real life. So if the uh, if the cursing offends you, I apologize. I'm, I'm just real on here. So uh, that's how that's how it goes. And I don't think I even I don't even think I'm that vulgar on here, but uh Anywho, so just wanted to put that out there. If anybody saw that floating around on on Instagram, that's what that was all about. And uh, that's all I got in terms of the cursing. (laughs) So let's talk about something cool like symbols and saving money on symbols. And the best way to save money on symbols is to buy dream symbols and gongs. You can get amazing sounding symbols that are not going to break the bank. Plus, you can trade in your old broken symbols and you can get a dollar off per inch of symbol that you bring in, which is pretty cool. So if you bring in three 20-inch symbols, you're getting $60 off a new Dream Symbol or Gong. You can learn more by going to dreamsymbols.com. Check them out for sure. Now, this is this this conversation is actually a masterclass that I did with Paul Wertico a couple years ago. So it was a while ago, but there's some really, really insightful information in here that I think that you'll dig, you'll get a lot from. And Paul's such a masterful player that I think everyone can learn something from him. So I had this, it was part of Drummer's Resource Pro a while ago, but that uh, we don't, we don't have Drummer's Resource Pro anymore, but I still have all this great audio content. So I wanted to share this with you this week because I think, again, it, it's, it's Paul Wertico. So he has a ton of, of insight and the dude is just a master player. So I figured I'd share it with you. I hope you dig it. This is the one and only Paul Wertico. So what we're going to be talking about today is musicality, creativity, and some improvisational stuff, and also really eliminating expectations out of your playing. Uh, Paul and I had a good conversation about this yesterday, uh, about you know how people tend to expect things uh, out of their playing, and and it sort of gets in their way, right, Paul? Well, yeah. I mean, there's you know, depending on what kind of music you're playing. So you know, if you're playing pop music or classical music where you know you're expected to play the same thing the same way basically the same time all the time because that's what the composition and the arranger and the you know composer want that's one thing but in creative music if you come in with an agenda like if whether it's it can be avant-garde jazz it can be even just bebop or whatever but if you expect that okay you know this is going to go this way, and then all of a sudden it doesn't. Um, if if you go, oh no, you know, like now what's happening? Then you kind of lose the the fact that 
the unexpected in life as well as in music is what makes you grow. Mm -hmm. And how you deal with things that are unexpected, it becomes almost like a muscle that you start getting used to that you actually enjoy the unexpected. Like for me, I enjoy the unexpected. I don't want things to be the same, you know, because once they're the same, you've already done it. So why do it again? You know. Right. right. So if you, like I said, if you're playing in a pop band and the singer wants the same tempo and the same dynamic and the, the form is the same, that's beautiful. That's what that is. But in real creative music, it's just a blank slate. You go in and then what it is is what it, it is, and it'll never be the same way ever again. Which is right. I love that. So now when when we're talking about musicality and we're talking about improvisation and and creative music, wouldn't if you're I think a lot of issues that people have is that they get locked into this this box where they say, okay, I'm going to just play this groove or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to follow along to whatever this record is. So how do you suggest that people start to get into that creative side of things? Because I know that as a drummer coming up, one of my hardest things, one of the hardest things that I went through as a younger player was creativity, musicality, and, and how to sort of, how to sort of get out of my own way if that makes any sense mm -hmm. to, to just like get sure. to that, that creative thing where I don't feel like I'm playing the same thing all the time. I don't feel like I'm playing, you know, everything is in this box where it's just boom, boom, got doom, 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 got kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's micro and macro improvisations. So, you know, if you listen to a pop song, it doesn't matter what it is, but if you listen to a pop song on a record and you learn that groove that whoever played it, they played it, Live, they very rarely ever play it the same way. Usually, mm -hmm. live things are faster. Usually, live there's you know maybe a little more ghost notes in. Or I mean, like with the Matheny band, I mean it was so funny. I mean we had a because um, a lot of stuff was with sequencers, right? So we had it, um, tempos that were for the recording, and they were usually slower than the live tour. And then the live tour, we had the, the tempos were a little faster. And what was really funny is the last week of any tour, we had the third tempo, which is even faster because it was like, okay, we want to go home, you know? Right. <laughs> so, so the idea on that was that, you know, you, you play something and then you can just change it subtly. You know, you can just add ghost notes or you can add just little things that enhance the groove that don't detour from the overall sound of the groove, mm -hmm. but those are like micro-improvisations. And usually what happens when people play live, even if they're the same drummer that was on recording, you know, they're going to start moving it around a little bit. I mean, right. one time, I mean, one time when I was doing the music messa in uh, Germany, there was a drummer, um, oh, I forgot, I, I, I don't even want to mention his name because he was a badass drummer but he was in a heavy metal band. And so, you know, I played and I did my thing and I was just, you know, making it up and that's what I do. And then he went on and he played with some tracks and he sounded great, you know. And when he got off, I said, man, you know, you were killing. He goes, oh, he said, no, man. He said, on that one fill, I didn't play the right Tom and people are going to know. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, are you kidding me? You know, because so, I mean, to me, I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, you know, I've done stuff where you have to play the same way. I mean, we all do because, you know, as a career, you do a lot of different things to, to be able to make money, to be able to get different exposure, to be able to get different experience, and you grow. But the fact that one time he hit the wrong time on a fill, and he thought that the people in the audience 
were, were going to know, and he was really depressed about that. I was like, oh, my God. Wow. You know? Wow. Yeah. So when you look at music like that, you know, I mean, on a class, see, I've been lucky. I mean, in high school, I had the, I'm still friends with my band director, even though he retired. You know, he would lo allow me to improvise on concert pieces. And because I'd make some stuff up, he goes, "Yeah, I like what you're doing better than what's written down." Cool. So sometimes, you know, if you have an educator or educators or teachers or inspirations that allow you to work those muscles to be creative, mm -hmm. that's really that. I mean, that's really important. And that's the way I like to teach. I like to teach that, like, you know, there's a way that maybe must be played if you're playing certain music. So, you know, it's going to be hard to improvise on a but, um, on a classical piece, you know, if there's sure. a tambourine part or a snare drum part, that's basically what's going to be. But your conductor, your different conductors take things at different tempos. That's 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 what makes it one conductor different than another. They change the piece. And as drummers in music, we're the conductor of the band. I mean, we we dictate tempo, we dictate dynamics, we dictate the way things flow. So in a lot of ways, I want to have that ability to change up things. You know what I mean, sure. and so and so when you're playing beats, whether they're jazz or hip hop or rock or anything, you know, one day is one day. The next day, you've grown, you've changed. The band has grown and changed. Maybe they want it a little faster that day, or they want you to play a little louder backbeat because of the club needs. The acoustics are different, so mm -hmm. so it you know you need to be able to do both, but if you're stuck in one thing, like a box, that's going to be really hard for you to function as a creative musician that goes with the flow of life, and, and music is part of life. Sure. So how do you, I, a lot of it we're talking about a live setting, how would you, how would you try that, or how would you get to that area in, in the practice room, so to speak? So if you're, well, in the, if you're always yeah. practicing... Uh, I'm always practicing, you know, my rudiments and I'm always working through stick control and, and I'm always playing these beats out of this book or something like that. Uh, and if you feel like you're sort of playing the same things, how would you take that into the practice room and, and start to get more improvisational and more creative, I think would be, would be more, uh, the question. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I've always had great chops, especially hand chops. I don't know why I practiced on pillows and stuff, but you know, when I was in school, I hated the rudiments. I thought, Oh, God, what is this stuff, you know? Right. But it wasn't until I started realizing that, you know, what drummers did with the rudiments. So, you know, whether if you're playing a four-stroke rough or whatever, and you go, you know, da 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 okay, well, you know, you want to be able to do that where, you know, you can get it to sound good at whatever tempo you're doing, whatever dynamic you're going to do. But then you start putting on the kit, and, and if you go, like, all of a sudden, oh, that's uh, Art Blakey. Oh, that's a Ginger Baker. You know, so you start applying those things. Then, and just just like the way we speak as, as humans, a four-stroke rough. If you accent the first note, or in the last note, well, then there's also the second, or the the, the third one. So you you start accenting different things of the same rhythm. That's one thing that, that can make a rhythm have a different inflection and a different mm -hmm. sound. 
that's a big thing. Then, it's like what I did on the drum channel, you start talking about the way you hit the drums. So, you, instead of doing that, you can, you can go, you know, or, right. or you know, all of a sudden now, the same rhythm has a different connotation because of the way you're striking the instrument. Mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what makes us each unique. It's because of the things, the choices we make. And the more choices we have to apply to a, a a, a musical um, interpretation that we have control over because we, we want to express ourselves the way we want to express ourselves, that's fantastic. So if you can only play a four-stroke rough one way, that's basically your one way of expressing yourself. Sure. And, you know, I, look, I, I like the idea of comparing it to how we talk. A couple of reasons. One, uh, an yeah. old, an old uh, mentor of mine told me, you know, a lot of people play the same way that they talk. Which is pretty, which is, you know, if people are kind of like, they kind of talk like this, then it's, you know, they'll play like that. Um, but also, you know, right. if, if I called you and I said, what are you doing? You would just say, oh, he, he's just asking me what I'm doing. But if I called you and I said, what are you doing? Same yeah. words, different inflections. And you would say, why, what do you mean? What, why, what did I do? You know? Right. So right. It's that, um, but I know yeah, what I love, are you, what are you doing? Right. What are you doing? Right. You know, what are you doing? I mean, those those all have four completely different meanings, you know? Right. So why not add that into your musicality? And, you know, and different types of music are going to bring out different things of that that you're going to utilize. You know, so, so sometimes you're going to want to keep everything really even. You know, sometimes you're going to want to have different inflections. But if you want to play a lot of different types of music, it's best to have, it's like having, you know, a box of crayons. I mean, you can either have one crayon, you know, a brown or a green or something, but then you can get, you know, you have 12 crayons that gives you those colors, but then you can have 64 crayons too. Right. It just depends. Some music's going to want 64 crayons of, of, of sound and color, you know? Sure. Sure. And it's interesting because it's speaking of the creativity, but also of the musicality side of things, it's it's hard to think musically as a drummer because it's not a melodic instrument. So, you oh, can, don't say that. Well, don't I say that. Well, well, I mean, it's it doesn't have <laughs> it, it. There's not. Well, it's a melodic instrument, but it's not a you. Anyone can just sit down and hit the drums and make noise out of it. So I think a lot of drummers and uh, tell me if you feel the same way that a lot of drummers don't think melodically, they think rhythmically, but not melodically. Yeah. I mean, that, that, I get that. I mean, and I mean, for me, you know, even when I was in school bands, I didn't want to play the snare drum. I wanted to play the bass drum and cymbals to highlight the melodies. I was always into melodies more or right. less. Right. And, also, I wasn't into patterns. So what you're talking about is that, like, you know, a lot of, you know, say rock or, you know, even Afro-Cuban stuff, a lot of times it's like a one or two bar pattern that you play. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done that because, you know, if I get called for a session or, you know, if I'm playing with a band that's playing the music, I'm going to play those grooves. But in general, I'm always thinking melodically. I'm thinking, I'm talking through the instrument, which means that even though I don't have, you know, whole octave or I don't have 12 notes per octave, you know, I'm, it doesn't matter to me because I'm, I'm, even if I have four drums, I'm getting a lot of color. So I'm actually getting sounds and pitches. Mm -hmm. And the, again, even when I, I tell people this all the time, is that when you, you hit an instrument harder, 
it goes up in pitch. So it's not just the dynamics and, and, and the volume of what you hit. It's also, you know, as, as a membrane bends more, I mean, it, the, it just bends it goes higher in pitch. Mm -hmm. So I'm always thinking melodically. And I mean, that's why I mean I didn't I didn't mean to say oh don't think that way, but it's just funny because you're oh, right. No, a lot I, don't, of drummers, I don't think that. I a lot of drummers play play beats. Right. Oh really? No, I don't. I mean, I think I think of the drums as a melodic instrument, and you know, I yeah, hear I hear melodies through. I mean, it's it took me a while to get to that point, though. I mean, that's a hard. It's a hard just of what you just said. A lot of drummers play beats. Right, and, and it, even even like if you think I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I mean, no, no. I, but you're, but, but we're here. We're here to listen to you talk. <laughs> well, no, no, both. I mean, I, I like that. Like, I mean, it's like we're playing. You know, we're, we're counter counterpoint. <laughs> right. um, you know, even the way you think of a drum set. I mean, you have a snare drum. A, a, you know, say you have four piece snare drum, a tom tom, a floor tom, and a bass drum. I mean, there you have like you know a soprano, alto, tenor. Maybe a baritone if you have an, and a bass. Mm -hmm. But if you're playing pop music, I mean, what is the bass drum called in rock and pop? It's called a kick drum. Right. So that's a completely different way of looking at the instrument. If you look at it as a bass drum, then that's a bass note, you mm -hmm. know. And so even both of them are big, the biggest drum in, on the drum set, and, and, and they, they serve functions of, of the lower end. Sometimes they're thought of as differently. You know, if you kick it and there's no pitch to it, it's just boom. Boom, boom. It's not boom, boom, boom. It's not like a bass player. Mm -hmm. So it's it's the way we look at different uh, different instruments for the different types of music we're playing. Sure, sure. And you know, I I just spent a, the last two weeks uh, in in Anaheim at Nam and everything, but I I stayed with Daniel Glass, and we were having this uh -huh. long, long conversation about about note and note values and unfortunately a lot of times drums you know if you if you hit a drum you know you can't tell if it's a quarter note or an eighth note or a sixteenth note or whatever the case so hearing that elongated the 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 full value of the note in what you're playing then you start to get to the point where oh okay now you're, now everything is elongated and you start to get this legato thing and it's like that's really the you know the secret sauce of why guys really sound really good when they play. It's just the elongating of the notes, not just dicka 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 da, you know, or or whatever the whatever the beat is that they're playing. Right, and even even when you you know can read music creatively, even if it's just out of the book syncopation, mm -hmm. you know, there's a difference between a sixteenth note, an eighth note, a quarter note, a dotted quarter note. So you know, if if you if you see you know dot da da da. You know, instead of da, 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 da. So when you read the note values as any other instrument, a trumpet player or whatever, you're going to start seeing that, you know, a quarter note is going to be longer than a sixteenth note. So this, on a short drum, is a sixteenth note. So you have to almost make it, make your phrasing appear that it's a longer note, even though if it's shorter no. And that's why sometimes I go, if I go straight down or I go out, a lot of times I go, when I go out, I'm thinking a longer note. It's like, ba, 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 ba. So right. I'm thinking phrasing like any other instrumentalist would think uh, other than a drummer, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, you know, you take a you take a marimba note and you hit it and it's going to ring out the full, the full value until it stops. But, you know, you hit a tom and it's, that's it. It's over. So I think. Right. So, so it's a simple. A symbol is going to, depending on what symbol, it's going to last longer. I mean, you can hit a symbol and go, ding, 
until you choke it off or you know or a hi hat is the only one that we really have control over the the length of the note so you know dum ps ps or dum ps 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 you know we can control the end of the note now in most most musicians especially when when they get good you know they're aware that the end of any note is just as important as the beginning of every note because mm -hmm. a lot of times you, know, you if you're if you're going you know striking a quarter note you know you want to be on time but if you have like three different trumpet players and each one feels a quarter note different you know you might get da da or you might get da da or get da da that so they're not going to be able to phrase together the, right. the section's going to sound really weird sure. so we have to think the same way as any other instrument and 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 sort of through through the way we approach the instrument, through the way we hear rhythms and interpret phrasing, we, we have to try to sound like, like a melodic instrument. And then we're also a harmonic instrument, you know? Yeah. So, we don't, you know, if you're playing a chord, you're playing, you know, three notes, four notes, depending on how many you want. I mean, you know, if we're hitting all four limbs, there's a chord right there, you mm -hmm. know? It's just not a melodic chord with different notes, but they're different sounds, sure. so that's melodic too. Sure. So I have, I have one more question for you, and then I'm going to open it up to, uh, to, to a bunch of the viewers that we have. So do you have any specific exercises that you would suggest people do for practicing the hearing the full value of the notes? Yeah, I mean, take, you know, say if you take Ted Reed's syncopation, mm -hmm. okay, and then if you take that and you read, say, the... the Starting around like what page thirty three or whatever. I was gonna say there's like thirty three notes. <laughs> yeah, right. That's what. That's so, like you know, the real. That's like the real. Like I mean, think right. about it. Great, you get to page thirty three. It's like forget it. That's, yeah, and those are all, all all figures that you're gonna see in big band charts and everything. Right, right. So if if you have you know one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four. So if it's da 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 da. Da, da, da. That's going to be different than da, 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 da. So if you have an eighth note, quarter note, quarter note, quarter note, you know, just displaced, and then the eighth note to make it a 4-4 four, four bar, Right. if it's a quarter note, it's going to be longer than that first eighth note. So you start you start looking at and, and just singing the rhythm. So instead of da, 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 you go da, 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 da. If you're playing like with a bass player, he's, and he's walking a bass line. He's not going doop, but, but, like he's going to boom, 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 ga doom, boom, boom. So you start thinking, like when you hit a ride symbol, it's not dit, 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 dit. It's ding, 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 da, ding, 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 ding. You start thinking of, of the full value of the note, which makes your time so much better because then you're not in a hurry to like, oh, it's, it's a space, i got to play the next note. But it also makes you sound like like a musician instead of five musicians and a drummer, all of a sudden there's six <laughs> musicians, you know? It reminds me of uh, something that Greg Hutchinson told me. He was like, you know, you're thinking about a swing beat. He said, it's not, he's a, it's not ding, 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 ding. It's walk the dog, walk the dog. And he's like, it's not walk the dog, walk the dog, walk the dog. It's walk the dog, walk the dog. It's like, you know, right. really elongate that thing out. <laughs> right. I have to say, I, what I did, I said, hey, swing the band, swing the band, swing the band. You know, so then you're mentally thinking, What's my job? I'm just swing the band. That's all my band, job. You know? Right. Awesome. So, so uh, right. let's see. The, the thing is, everybody, everybody that knows, everybody that's experienced and is, is good, basically, knows the same stuff. It's just basically the way we kind of show it and the way, you know, our personal interpretations of how we look at it. But right. 
you know, we talk to anybody, it, and everybody knows the same stuff, really. It's fun. We got to just get it to everybody, so everybody, so we're not like, you know, it's like you said, it's not musicians and then drummers. You know, we we want we want to be locked right. in the same Absolutely. category. So, uh, so let's get into a couple of questions. Yes. I have I have one from uh, or I have a couple from Michael Scott. So we'll we'll start with one of his. Okay. Uh, how much? Hi, Michael. How much creative freedom and input were you given when working with Pat Metheny, and what is your approach when learning new material for an artist? Okay, well, good. I mean, those are two really different points of view. I mean, with Pat, I was there were never any drum parts written, you know. So basically, he would write the music, and then I had to come up with like a drum part for it. So I was given a lot of leeway, which was fantastic. Um, Given the sound of our band, I mean that you know we, we you know very rich sounds. There was a lot of things going on sequencer-wise and all that. I had to be careful not to step on other instruments because that's the other thing is with the band. You know, you want certain uh, instruments with different frequencies to be able to come through. You don't want to step on them so that they're all all over the place. But yeah, I mean, and with Pat, I mean, you know, once I came up with a part and and it, it worked. When we went on tour, I basically always kind of changed it up a little bit. I, you know, I didn't play the same thing all the time. I mean, Last Train Home is probably the only thing where, you know, you had to do that. I mean, because that was a thing. I mean, but every other tune, you know, you would change up, micro-improvise. And then maybe over a period of a week into the tour, I might get a little further than what he was comfortable with from the original idea. So he said, oh, just come back a little bit more to that. And then reel so it in a bit. Yeah, you know, so it's like fishing. You reel it in, you let it out, you know. <laughs> but it was great. I mean, there was never anything ever written on that. And, um, I mean, you know, it was it, that was a fun gig because, I mean, here we're playing basically with sequencers. So, you know, my responsibility, I, I, you know, I've got great time, thank God, you know. So I was able to stay with the sequencer and stuff. We never used a, a click track or anything like that with the sequencer. So you're playing with, you know, like a bass, you know, like whatever, ba 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 ba. You you know, you're playing with something, or or you're playing with something like that. So you have to line things in. So you're playing with a musical instrument as opposed to just you know, a, you know, a click right. track. Right. Something. And then drilling in. Yeah. So go ahead. So hopefully that answers that. I mean, but it, you know, and I just made the stuff up, and it, it made me grow. I mean, one thing when I joined the band was like, you know, my dynamic range was pretty wide. But the first thing Pat says, okay, make it this wide. You know, so the lower is much lower, and the higher is much higher. So that's part of the thing. Even when I do with students, or uh, you know, on Saturday I, I did the North Shore Jazz Festival. You know, I work. I was a band clinician working with the high school bands that performed, and that's always why I say you know, always increase your dynamic range because a lot of bands are you know they even if it's wider make it wider over exaggerated. You know? Right, right. Do you know why when you tune a drum you're supposed to go diagonal across the drum? That's because your drum is flawed. I hate to break it to you, but your drum is flawed because of the way that the edge is. The typical edge doesn't allow the drum head to sit on it properly. So when you tighten down one lug, it causes the drum head to shift and pop up on the other side. That's why you have to tune it diagonally. But now with the new Sonicleer Edge from Mapex, that's a thing of the past. The Sonicleer Edge allows the head to sit flush. So it promotes ease of tuning, increased shell resonance, and optimal tonal clarity. So you're going to have to do a lot less work 
and get a lot greater sound. To learn more about the Sonic Clear Edge, go to mapexdrums.com. Hey, for all you hard hitters out there, if you're looking for drumsticks that last longer, then check out Promark's Fire Grain Drumsticks. They use a heat-tempered technology that makes the drumstick last much longer than a normal hickory drumstick. The best part is it's all natural, so they're just hardened by flame, so you're not going to get all this excess vibration and there's no space-age gimmicks or anything like that. Just real hickory, hardened by flame. The best part is they're available in a wide variety of sizes and forward balance and rear balance. Check them out by going to Promark.com. Let's get back into it with Paul. Even if the dynamic range is here, I feel like most of the people are usually play right around here. You know, it's like, what's that old right. joke? It's like dynamics. I play loud all the time. <laughs> you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm playing as loud as I can. What do you mean dynamics? <laughs> right. Yeah. That one. And then Michael's other question was about working on creativity. Uh, how do you approach when learning new material for an artist? Oh, okay. Well, it depends on what artist. I mean, that band Word of Cocaine and Gray, which, you know, I'd, I'd sent you some stuff. I mean, that's 100% improvised. We don't talk about the music at all. Otherwise, like, I mean, I just played with this great piano player from uh, Argentina, Mario Parmesano. He's he's plays with uh, Al Miola, and he sent me a bunch of music. And then he also sent me, you know, s- some stuff to listen to as well. Because sometimes, you know, you can get a, you can get some sheet music, but then I like to hear the music as well, like how they played it, because sometimes the interpretation is different than what's actually written. Mm-hmm. And then basically what I do, um, I try to be ready for that first rehearsal and first gig, you know. So if it's, the music's really complicated, I might, you know, depending on when I get it, I'm going to definitely do my research because I don't want to sit there and waste time, you know, not doing stuff I could have done by myself. Sure. And then sometimes, sometimes there's music where... It's real simple, but still, then if it's if it's if it's simple backbeat stuff or whatever, I want to get the feel right. I want to make sure that my sound is right. So, you know, I'm on hundreds of records. I mean, everything from like Dixieland to big band to rock to blues. I mean, so each one has its own set of parameters to deal with, and so you want to learn to understand what the, what the essence of the music is, what your role is. You know, like I was listening to Tony Allen's. Uh, interview, you know, on, on the drummer's resource, and where you were asking about, did Fela tell him the beats, because Fela pretty much wrote all that other stuff out for everybody, and he said, no, I, I made up, I kind of took it, and then I made it my own thing. Right. So you try to, you know, someone's hiring you just to be a drummer, okay, because they needed a drummer. That's different when, than when they hire someone that's got a name or a style or something that they want. So if someone hires me, Hopefully they're hiring me for what they know of me. Right. If they're going to hire just a drummer because they couldn't get any other drummer, then they might just have to play the the, the basic beat. Right. But the whole idea for anything that we do and our job is to, is not only to groove the music, but to make everybody else feel good, make all the other musicians feel the best they've ever pl- felt playing that music, and is is to is to make the composition, the arrangement, everything that you're playing successful so that the audience gets something out of it. So our job is really, like I said, we're the conductor in a lot of ways. We have a lot of responsibility, mm-hmm. but yet sometimes, you know, we don't always get the lion's share of stuff because, you know, we're not there with a microphone or twiddling the guitars or anything, <laughs> but that doesn't matter. I mean, our job is, is, is a very, I mean, like when I was in baseball in Little League, I wanted to be a catcher, mm-hmm. you know, 
because I thought, you know, and that's a very important job. It's not the most glamorous job. You got a mask on and stuff, but what are you doing? You're calling the pitches. You're basically telling everybody what's going on. So you're behind the scenes. Right. Your job is very important, and that's the way it is for drummers. So it's it's to learn whatever whatever you're getting hired to. It's to learn the function of your role in that particular music. I totally agree. Uh, let's go to another question from Andrew. Andrew said, what are some of your favorite albums that feature this creative, open style of drumming that we were talking about, uh, and including any albums that you played on? Okay, great. Hi, Andrew. Great question. I mean, uh, wow. You know, there's so many, so many albums and so many CDs and so, so much stuff out there that has influenced me. Um, if you want to go to really creative, like say avant-garde, you know, people that just make up new sounds. I mean, go look at there's there's American drummers like Milford Graves, Andrew Cyril, uh, Rashid Ali, uh, Sonny Murray, Don Moyet. Um, there's a whole list of those kind of people, and then there's European drummers like Han Benick, uh, Gunter Baby Summer. And you'll see people that just expand the horizons of what drumming can be. And the funny thing about them, they can all play straight ahead too. They, you know, it's not that they're just free, right. crazy, weird drummers. They can they can lay it down in so many ways. You know, you look at Calvin Weston or all these drummers. I mean, they're killing. And then for me, it's funny because I mean, it's just like as an actor gets known for his most famous role. You know, so you think of Fred Gwynn. Being you know, Herman Munster and the Munsters, but right. you know, he was actually a really good actor in other things. If you see, you know, my cousin Vinny or anything, I mean, he's got other things. Right. So same thing with musicians. I mean, I you know, so with Matheny's band, we sold millions of records. So most people think of me as a Matheny person. But what's funny when before Matheny, you know, I was in this band, Earwax Control, Spontaneous Composition, all this stuff, and I played really out because I really liked playing out too. And when I got the gig with Pat, some people, wow, why did Matheny hire Paul? He's kind of, you know, he's kind of an out drummer. And then a couple of years later, all of a sudden, this sax player from New York, Charles Gale, came in to play at the concert, and I got hired for that. People were going, why did, why did they hired Char Paul Worker for Charles Gale. He plays with Pat Metheny. So, you know, you completely reverse your, your perception in, 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 in everything. Right. But if you really want to go, I mean, there's like a great record, uh, one of my favorite records is a drum sax duo with Frank Catalano, a great sax player, called Topics of Conversation. That came out. If you really want to, there's four CDs and, and three DVDs of Word of Cocaine and Gray. That's the one we've been together. I mean, that to me is like some of the most creative music I've ever played. So not only musically, but then we do films to all this stuff. That's really great. David Kane is a really great filmmaker, and so th there's that stuff. Go look, listen to Earwax Control. Go on, go and and get those two records. You can get them on CD Baby. I mean that band was totally improvised, and we we're doing that stuff in the 70s and 80s before anybody was doing this stuff. I was right. miking my drums with Barkisberry pickups and putting through effects, and like the second album, uh, Two Live, number two live, it's like that's a live recording to a, a, a stereo microphone with no PA or anything. It's three people. It sounds like 12 people. Totally improvised. You can't believe what's going on with that. So sometimes, you know, it's funny because, I'm, you know, a lot of people think of me as a musical drummer, 
and that's great. I mean, you know, that's that's good. It's better than being the fastest gun in town because then <laughs> right. there's always a new fastest gun in town. But I always thought of myself as like a Keith Moon type of drummer. You know, I always thought of myself as really out there. And but you know, of all the records, the Matheny band was more or less, you know, was very it was great music. It was very complex music, but you know, sort of listenable. And and a lot of times you couldn't hear half the things I was doing because even though I was doing them, they kind of got mixed in and blended in with other things that, that needed to be heard in the mix. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of funny, you know. I mean, I cracked cymbals with Matheny. Every tour I cracked numerous cymbals, you know. Or, you know, I, I played the snare drum, but you couldn't hear them because of the way things were mixed because it wasn't about me. It was about the overall sound, right. you know. Right, right. So you start, you start looking at it that way. And, I mean, like Tony Allen said, too, he said, you know, why are you doing this? Well, I'm there to serve the music, and that's that's any. I think any drummer, or any musician, no matter what it is, it, unless your ego gets in the way and it's all about me, I've got to play fast, I've got to play solos. That's not what what that's not what's going to keep you playing with other people. I mean, they right. they hire you to make them feel good, and then if you're a good soloist or whatever, that's just icing on the cake. I agree. So there's a question that I would I want to tie into this from Anthony. Yeah. Um, he says, "Hi Paul, are are there anything is there anything that you're working on these days to improve your mus musicianship?" So we were just talking about you being a, a musical drummer. So are there things that you're doing now to work on your musicianship? Well, I always work on just you know being able to express myself more. So even basic things, just to be able to kind of kind of make sure that you know. I'm playing what I what I want to play the way I want to play it. But you know what really helps your musicianship is being an educator, is teaching. So I'm a tenured prof you know assistant associate professor of jazz at Roosevelt University. And so some of my students, and you know Hannah Ford with was playing with Prince or Glenn Kochi from Wilco. He did go to Roosevelt, but I've had really great success. And all my students that that graduate Roosevelt all working. I just got something today that there's a band called Genome that just released a new thing. But when you teach, you're constantly reevaluating who you are, what you're telling people, you know, and then you're getting feedback because of what they either learn or having trouble learning. So like if you have five ways of showing somebody to do something and they need the 13 way to do it. You have to be creative enough to get from five, six, seven to the 13th way. Sure. So that gives you this completely different way of looking at your music. You know, if if you teach this is the right way, this is the wrong way. I never teach that because I mean, if you look at music, you know, through history, you know, things have been broken. The rules have constantly been broken. They, they've been opened up to, to, for new avenues of expression. So as an educator, when I see my students, you know, some students are coming, they have incredible chops. Maybe they might play faster than me. But, you know, then we might work on something they need to work on, and then that makes me realize, oh, I better, you know, work on that, and, I might, and also I'm going to work on getting chops that they have, you know? Right. That's what really works. So this, this is actually... Help, I hope. This uh, this actually ties in really well. Michael asked, "What is your teaching philosophy and approach when teaching new students?" Yeah, I mean, I teach every student as an individual. You know, I don't have like the curriculum that this guy or girl is a freshman, and then we're going to work on just this, and then as a sophomore we're going to work on this. Uh, uh I look at everybody because you know, have everybody is an individual, and you know, you look at some. You know, gospel drummers that come in or whatever, and you know, and their arm is as big as my leg, right. and they can just lay it down. You know, so what are we going to work on? We're going to work on 
that, but we're going to work on things that they haven't been exposed to. So if you if you approach everybody as an individual, which you should do in life, sure. you know, I mean, if, if you, you know, you look at somebody and you can't, you know, that's what drives me crazy about, like, looking at politicians and, and saying, you know, these people are, you know, this race is like this, or this religion is like this. Well, come on, give me a break. I mean, no individual is even the same. Right. Say, say you look at one person, and you look at them six months later, depending on what's happened in their lives, they're not the same person anymore. Mm -hmm. So you have to, I think, you have to be creative in your teaching, and that's one reason I like teaching, because just like, you know, if you play the same music the same way all the time, you can do that, but, you know, you know, some people would get bored with that. If I went in and just taught the same way all, all, all the time, I wouldn't be fulfilling myself as, as me, you know. I have to be creative. I have to look and improvise and find ways to, to reach that person, just the same way your music has to find ways to reach your audience and the other musicians. I totally agree. Uh, so Peter asked... He said, "That's kind of a long one." Uh, so you, he said, "You've been a huge influence on my playing style over the years, and part of the practice routine is to play along with you on the Matheny tracks. It often elevates my playing and my mood during my nightly practice sessions. But in addition to playing on top of what you're doing, I'm tr and trying to match what you play. I often go off on a riff that augments what you're playing. I do this with with uh, I do this with tracks." that I play to, I find that it helps build my chops. Would, do you think that this is a good technique? Of course. I mean, you're, you're never going to be me. I'm never going to be you. So, you know, if you if you want to learn exactly what I'm playing, I mean, that's good. You know, you, you can do it, and then you can get into my concept, at least my concept of what that was on the day it was recorded, which right. wouldn't have been the same concept, you know, a month into the tour. So what you're doing, in effect, is, is you're touring on that music. You're taking that music, understanding hopefully what it is, how it relates to you as a player, and then you're expanding on it. And that, that's, that's what life is about. That's what music is about. You know, it's not stuck in a box. You know, it's, it's, it's not, um, what, what do you call it, when, when something's in amber. You know, it's not, it's not fossilized. It's, it's not stuck. It's, right. it's a constant flow forward. And then what you're going to do you know, I mean, it was funny because even on uh, Saturday when I did the North Shore Jazz Festival, one of the bands played Minwano, and it was like the person, you know, the drummer had played. He's a good drummer, but he was playing it totally different, and the band wasn't really moving. So I sat in and I played, and it was like, whoa, that was cool. And the drummer was really excited. So all of a sudden, he could play what I was playing because now he understood what I was doing. The band sounded better because it was closer to the concept of that style of music. Right. So it was a win-win situation. Yeah. So this this ties in. All these questions seem to be tying in, which is really nice. Of course. Uh, this is, yeah. <laughs> Uh, like they're they're just they're wor working right along. Uh, so this because we're talking about practicing. So um, T Low asks, do you have any suggestions for strengthening your left hand playing in traditional grip? And if you have any sticks handy, can you demonstrate? Thanks. Sure. I grew up and I played traditional and I played match simultaneously. Um, I also played on pillows way before you know I had a drum. So. You know, the whole thing was like catching, you know. So, so if I go like from a, from this to this, so there's no bounce on here. There's no bounce. I can bounce here, and then it's not going to bounce here. 
So what I'm doing is I'm catching. I don't know if you can see, but you kind of you kind of catch the bounce. So you drop and catch. So that's one of the things to strengthen your left hand. Now a couple things too. I mean that might be a little difficult at first. So with the left hand, you know, I, I use a lot of thumb. So if you just put your hand straight like this, put the stick, you know, where it's supposed to be. Don't don't go too far back or too too far front because then it's going to be top or back heavy. You go there. I'm going to keep my fingers basically straight and relaxed, and then I'm just going to just going to turn my wrist. I'm just kind of like doing this, and I'm just going to get used to doing that. So after a while, you know, my thumb is kind of just is just doing that, and then I can close my fingers up on that. So now my wrist is strong, my my fulcrum is going to get strong, and then I'm just going to bring my fingers in to do that. That another thing is to do this thing where you you drop and catch with your thumb. So you go like this and then you then you catch it. So I'm dropping and catching. So there instead of going like that where it's all bounces, I'm going dit 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 dit. I'm, I'm catching the stick after it goes and pushing it in hard. So that, that's going to build up your fulcrum. It's the same you can do that same with the right hand too. But you start doing that and all of a sudden, you know, you start you start feeling like you're not your hand isn't uh, handicapped too much anymore. Now, when you play, don't play like palm up like this. We used to call that the ashtray. You can put an ashtray in there, you know. You don't want to do that because if you if you start here, how can you? Ah, you can't go anywhere. So basically, you're kind of at this position. It's almost like your hands in match are like this. This is like this too. It's sort of a degree where it's like this, and then you can just you can turn it back. And you get you get a lot a lot more a lot more width. From here, it's like ah, and you're going to end up getting getting problems. Yeah. So and the thing is, you want to be rotating here. You want to be rotating rather right. than rather than exactly. Here. Yeah, because you, yeah, you can't rotate. I mean, if you go like this, how much can you turn your hand past that? You right. know, right. you can't. But if you're here, you can rotate that far. So that's that's a big part of it too. And then the other thing on this too. You know, it's it's where you do it. So you know, if your stick is parallel to here or up like this, you sometimes see jazz drummers do this too. Now that's that's a sound, but it, the reason some drummers do that is because there's a thing called a dead stroke. So you have an open stroke and a dead stroke. You know, that's a different thing. It's like when you bury the beater in the bass drum or you come back. Those are two different sounds. Both of them are good. I mean, the old days they said never bury the beater in the bass drum. How stupid is that? You know, that's like saying only use one sound. Right. So when you see jazz drummers do this, it's easier to get a dead stroke because you're above. When you're out here trying to do a dead stroke, your leverage is you're already out here, so you got to push down. Here, all I have to do is just press down a little bit. Mm. So you start working these different things. Then a really cool thing that I work on every day is just turn your hand over. It's like you're doing a, a basketball thing. So now I'm holding the stick here, and I'm just turning out, and I'm just doing this. So all of a sudden, same here. Just, you know, the stick is just bouncing, and I use different fingers to do it. But that, that allows me to kind of get as much bounce as possible out, out of these sticks. And, and, and you just have to let the stick do what it wants to do. You know, it's like as human beings, a lot of times we want to control everything, you know. But there's physics, which means that there's inertia. There's gravity, there's velocity, you know. Buddy Rich, supposedly the only thing you would ever show is anybody just, just like that. So you, you come down from here, and as fast as you throw it down is as fast as it comes back. 
So you don't, I'm not lifting the stick. I'm just letting it bounce. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the thing here too. Just let it, let it happen. Let the stick. And do after the work a while, you do let it. the stick do the work. And then when you get on a pillow or your, or your lap, then that's a different thing. So all of a sudden there is no bounce. So it's like going from a tight snare drum to a floor time. How can I go? I can play totally even, and this applies to brushes either too. So there, I'm dropping, and and what I'm doing, I'm going dot dot, and I'm, and I'm pulling in. So I'm pulling in either hand. So after a while, it's like you're catching the, the yeah, I'm not going like this, that's no bounce. Mm -hmm. I'm going like this, and I'm pulling out that second note. And after a while, that just becomes second nature. So to do an even roll, I don't know if you can hear that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, we it's perfectly even. Yeah, so that's just, I've been doing that since I started playing drums when I was 12, which was actually late. I didn't even have a drum set until I was 14. So that stuff was just... I taught myself this. I mean, my band director in sixth grade was a saxophone teacher. So I learned all this stuff by myself. I, and I asked my mom when I got a drum set as a graduation present, can I have a, you know, take some drum set lessons? And she goes, no. She goes, just do what you want to do. And nice. to this day, even though she's passed, I thank her, you know. Right. Because, I mean, so I just bought a lot of records, went to see a lot of people play, you know, talk to people, and just, I practiced. I mean, my girlfriend in high school and college told me, I mean, you know, I would be driving all of a sudden just turn off the side of the road and workouts. I was so obsessed with music. And the other thing that was so funny, even like when I was in my 20s, I, I had my own house in Elgin, Illinois. It was a corner house. And, you know, I'd get back from a gig at like 3 in the morning, and I'd put on like headphones and practice to like, you know, Jeff Becker to like, you know, Frank Zappa with the, with the windows open. I had no idea what I was doing. And one time my neighbor next door, who was a nice guy, thank God, he came over the next day and goes, man, didn't you hear me pounding on your door at 4.30 in the morning? I said, no. He goes, you're lucky. I was going to kill you. You know, <laughs> I was just so obsessed. I could not get enough practice. Right. You know? And so when you look at people like, you know, say Charlie Parker, you know, the great alto saxophone player, the founding father with, with a bebop along with Dizzy mm -hmm. Gillespie, you know, people think, oh, how did he do this stuff? Oh, he shot heroin. A lot of people thought he shot heroin, so a lot of people back then shot heroin thinking they were going to become Charlie Parker. No, Charlie Parker for three years practiced 15 hours a day every day, right. you know, and that's what he did. So the thing is, it's what you practice, it's how you practice. Some people have, need 15 hours, some people can do get a similar effect maybe with less hours if they're efficient in what they do. Some people learn faster. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all different, which makes us all kind of have our own unique thing happening. But the main thing is let your body tell you what's going on. Let the stick tell you what's going on. If, if, things, if things sound really good, you know, like with a basketball, if you can go like this with a basketball and it comes up, well, then you're probably dribbling right. If it's starting to go like this and the ball is all over the place, well, maybe you're not dribbling. Right? Maybe you need to slow so it down a little bit. Or... Yeah, right. So, you know, it's, it's okay to play slow and examine. A lot of people, when they practice, they're looking off in space or they're looking at their teacher. No, you know, you, you can watch it in, a, in a either in a mirror or just look at look at your hands look like what's going on you know you just you kind of self analyze things mm -hmm. and that's going to get you a lot faster than if you know if you're just spacing out and just doing stuff but not not realizing why something's working or not working right you know self analyzation will get to the goal a lot faster so I hope that helps so total that helped me. <laughs>
so the next <laughs> question is from Christian who said, while with Pat and Matheny group, especially in the 80s, there was a lot of South American and Brazilian influence musically and rhythmically in the group. Was there any special preparation or training for that at the time? Not really. I mean, that was what's so funny. I mean, the first time I played Brazil, I had Brazilian drummers asking me what I was doing because, you know, I always liked melodic music. So, you know, and I grew up, I'm 63, I just turned 63 this month. So, you know, I grew up listening to, to jazz and rock and ethnic music. I just bought whatever records were available. I was just an obsessive, you know, record collector. And so a lot of stuff that I listened to was melodic. I just love melodies. Like I was saying earlier, remember I said I didn't want to just play the snare drum in marching right. band. I wanted to play bass drum and snare drum highlight the melodies. That's one reason I like Pat's band, because it was very melodic. So Pat was, you know, went through different phases of liking certain types of music, and he was really into this Milton Nascimento. Milton Nascimento was like was one of the greatest Brazilian artists ever. There was an album called uh, no, uh, Clube Disquinho 2. And so some of the melodies that Pat came up with were stolen obviously but he it, you know he took things he took the influences of stuff and then when I played I mean I knew a bossa nova I knew a samba but that music was not going to be that you know it was you know it was never told a bossa nova so because it had a Brazilian feel in it you know I, I kind of hinted at certain things but I tried to make it my my own and the other thing was that, you know, like the double flat ride, the, you know, that came from a Brazilian instrument called the cachiche, you know, they're like baskets, and guys go, so I, in some ways, I was trying to play the, the flat rides, that concept, so Brazilian music, in that way, influenced me, now, Brazilian drummers, I mean, there's some amazing, brilliant Brazilian drummers, and, and the first time I went to Brazil, it was in 1985, and Pedro Asnar, uh, who is Argentinian, you know, he took me out, and I bought about 50 records. I bought like, you know, you know, Ivan Lin's records, Roberto uh, Gismonti records, you know, Gilberto uh, Gil records. So uh, who did you? Who were you, you playing know, Brazil did. with? So I listened to all these people. Were you playing yeah. with Brazilian artists, or were you playing with? with no, I was just listening to them. You know, in Chicago, I mean, you know, in Chicago, you have to play everything. So you know, you have to play Brazilian music. You know. If, if it's a gig or even if it's just a couple songs during a, you know, a wedding or whatever, you know, you have to learn a lot of different styles. But basically, we were reinventing that music to, to suit our own way of, of presenting it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and to this day, to this day, I mean, you know, I still listen. I mean, there's a drummer, Paulo Braga, you know, who is a famous uh, Brazilian percussionist. It's on tons of records. And, you know... He played some of the craziest stuff ever. I mean, he's, he's, check him out, Paulo Braga. He's killing on this stuff, you know. But the music again was dictated by, you know, like their, the way they live, the way they phrase, the way they talk, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And the drumming fit into that that particular way of making that music groove. I mean, Milton. But look up, look under, look Milton Banana, spelled in Milton Banana. He's kind of the inventor of the bossa nova slash samba. So he's great. Look look under Edison Machado, who was like the greatest samba player back then. You know, do your history. Go back and look at the guys that invented all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Then you can go up to the people that are playing all that stuff now. I like it. Hope that so, helps. 
so we're running short on time, but I want to. I got one more question for yeah. you from, from Lee, uh, who said, "Who who are your favorite drummers today, and and some in the past as well?" Wow. Well, I mean, again, there's so many of them, and you know, I'm getting turned on to new drummers all the time by new bands all the time. You know, people come in and say stuff. You know. You know, a lot of people like Mark Juliana. He sounds great. Mm -hmm. You know, Chris Dave. You know, Thomas Pridgen. I mean, there, there's just so many, so many people that are so individualistic. I won't mention a name, but I remember there was a really famous rock drummer, and in the 1980s, in his interview in Modern Drummer, he said that everything had been played now. It was, you know, it's so funny to read that now. It's like, okay, right. there's nothing left. Just like, you know, the U.S. Patent Office in the 1890s was going to close because they said everything had been invented in the 1890s. Everything had been invented. So the thing is, you know, people are constantly doing different things. I mean, the whole idea, you know, of playing open-handed. I mean, why do people play like this? Well, that's the way we were taught. Right. You know, why do pe even people play like this? I mean, there's a lot of things you can do, especially with brushes this way. But I remember being in seventh grade in the, in the choral room, and we, everyone was laughing about Ringo because he played match grip, saying, oh, he doesn't know how to play, you know? Right. So, you know, this is an evolving, evolving art form, an evolving process. It's very slowly evolving all the time. I mean, it's, it's funny how long things take, you know, all of a sudden for women to get the right to vote or blacks to, to you know, have equal rights. I mean, we still don't even have a lot of stuff. Right, right. So that's the same with music. A lot of times people are afraid if they're taught this, then to do this all of a sudden is like, wow, you know, no one do has done this. So who's brave enough to open up new doors and say, this is the way I'm doing it? Right, right, right. I don't care what other people have done. I don't care what you think of it. It's working for me. That's, that's, that's what innovation is. That's what genius is. Yeah, I agree. So that was my man, Paul Wertico. I hope you dug it. I hope you got some really good insight out of that. Again, the dude is just a masterful player and always has... Very, very good, tangible advice, and I appreciate him being a part. He's been on the podcast twice, and we did this masterclass together, so just very thankful that he takes the time to uh, to, to share all his knowledge with us. So head over to drummersresource.com forward slash session 430 if you want to check out the show notes. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I will be talking to you soon. Peace.